This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs, your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb, they go astray from birth speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths, tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Mm. I dare say for most people, um, and this was my experience for the vast majority of my life, that is not what we think about when we think of the Psalms. Um, you know, we, we jump in our minds to Psalm 23 about the Lord Uh, being my shepherd. Um, And that's a whole lot more comfortable. Uh, That's a whole lot more comforting uh, for most of us, at least at at some initial superficial level. Um, I think we really aren't sure what to do when justice concerns break into the Psalms, uh, when pleas for God's judgment against enemies end up providing the the grammar of prayer and praise to God. Uh, That's not what most of our worship sounds like. We're liturgically conditioned uh, not to expect that. And that sort of reinforces our sense that these are are the types of prayers that don't belong uh, in communion with God. Uh, I think we also just have a hard time uh, figuring out how these psalms are coherent with the the person of Jesus as the revelation of God that we see in the New Testament. Hmm. Um, We aren't sure how petitions for justice map onto the mission of Jesus and the subsequent mission of his church. We aren't sure how petitions for justice map onto uh, Christ's commands to love our enemies. So these are foreign uh, and disconcerting uh, types of prayers. Um, which is no small reason, I'm sure, why uh, most of them are quickly skipped over uh, when we're right. reading through the Psalms, or, or they don't become part of the diet of, of preaching and worship in, in the liturgy of the church. This, and I have seen Psalm 137, 
used in, in, in hymnody. So you'll see some hymn, hymnals that have Psalm 137. They do stop short of, right. plus is the one who smashes their children uh, against the rocks. Um, but I, I wonder also too, is they are asking for not just the justice of God, but in, in some ways we'd say the vengeance of God. Um, and I guess maybe you could talk a little bit about that move in itself. They're asking for God to avenge like what they're specifically not doing is saying, "Hey, let's grab, uh, you know, clubs and swords and go go take care of business." Um, so, what is the difference there? Yeah, uh, so you're right. the The psalmist is asking for the vengeance of God, uh, but in in the psalmist's case, he is always asking for the just vengeance of God. Uh, if we if we pay attention to the actual pleas, if we get past our initial revulsion at the fact that they're they're using vivid imagery uh, to describe the judgment that enemies need to undergo from God. Uh, we, we can discern that there's a logic to their petitions. Um, they're asking first for the cessation of violence. Violence is happening and nobody is doing anything to stop it. The structures mm-hmm. of society uh, and the judicial system are not operating as they ought to, and the psalmist is stranded with nowhere else to go except to plead for God to make the onslaught of unjust attack cease. The psalmist is also, though, asking for vindication. Uh, oftentimes, you know, the, the explicit cry is, vindicate me, O God. Um, whether it's explicit accusation or just the implicit accusation that comes when you are the target of unjust attack, the psalmist wants God to set the record straight on the public uh, world stage that uh, the psalmist is, in fact, innocent of the charges against him. The psalmist has not, in fact, done the sorts of things that ought to be eliciting this kind of attack from outsiders. Uh, the, the psalmist will pray that sometimes it's in the negative. It's not vindicate me, O God. It's let me not be put to shame mm. because shame is what is cloaking the psalmist when uh, these unjustified and unjustifiable attacks are are pelting him from from every side. Um, But then in in the Psalms, there's always a callback to the covenant justice of God. Uh, The Psalms are are all the time uh, referencing uh, God's promises to exact just, just vengeance in the world, his promises to judge wickedness and to cleanse unholiness. Uh, so whether it's the, the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis 3.15, or the Abrahamic Covenant, or uh, the Lex Talionis and you know, other specific uh, instances and, and um, stipulations of the Mosaic Code, the psalmist is often almost footnoting his prayers with the promises of God. He's not asking, uh, Lord, uh, I want to see them suffer. I, I want to engage this vindictive muscle, and I want you to legitimate it for me and to make it happen. He takes the covenant promises of God and asks for God to instantiate what God has already uh, covenanted and committed himself to doing in the world. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the the kind of the the graphicness of the violence here, like uh, break the teeth in their mouths, defang the lions, mm-hmm. 
um, and blunt their arrows. It's it's really aimed at the very specific, you know, the the specific problem, which is they're attacking me in this particular way. Right. I assume break the teeth in their mouth is shut them up in some way mm-hmm. as well. The taunts, um, taunts, which uh, a friend of mine, uh, Matthew Lynch, has taught me that taunts in many ways count as as violence itself, or at least the, the prelude to violence. Um, so there are, there is no, um, sticks and stones, uh, but words will never hurt me here. Right. Well, in, in the Psalms, uh, if, if you walk through all 150 Psalms of the Psalter, a lot of times the violence is rhetorical violence. Mm-hmm. It is verbal violence. And, and it's not just that that may be the precursor to more violent action on the part of the enemy, but that, I mean, I mean, especially in a communal culture where honor and shame uh, have such purchase with one's network and web of relations, um, a false accusation can be deadly. Hmm. Uh, A false accusation can cut you off from every avenue of safety and human contact that you've ever known. Hmm. There are profound, and we see it all the time um, uh, in, in cable news media, or on social media, uh, where words end up having huge ramifications on the ability of innocent parties to flourish. Uh, there are there are social, uh, sometimes vocational, economic, but but certainly psychological and spiritual consequences uh, to false and wicked speech. And the Psalms put their finger on it, uh, where we tend to think that a punch is worse than an insult. The Psalms help us see that an insult uh, or a false accusation, an unjust piece of condemnation, um, can hurt in some ways farther and deeper uh, than even physical forms of violence may be able to. Yeah. And I think anybody who has been falsely accused of something uh, knows the the gut wrenching sense and the the panic and the kind of the anxieties that come with this. And uh, you know, even people like I, my myself, uh, when I've had to deal with false accusations, I have um, you know, even for me, it's not like oh, people won't think I'm this anymore. That that's actually even not. <laughs> That's not what bothers me. I'm like, okay, if they think that about me, that's fine. Uh, there's something actually that goes much deeper with me, and maybe mm-hmm. this is just my own psychology, but uh, just that, like, I just can't handle. Maybe because I know what I actually am guilty of and what I'm horrible about and what I should be accused of. And I'm mm. like, but that's not it. That's right. not the one. <laughs> there's just this deep sense of injustice. I remember having as even, and I've seen it in my kids. One of my kids has this as well. Just cannot handle it, and so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think if you want to hurt me, that's that's the way to go. I'll take that over a punch or a, a bullet from a gun any day. Right. And the Psalms give us the words to express that profound pain to God. The Psalms mm. give us license to name the ugliest parts of the human experience and the sin in the world, and not only to express it, to disclose it to a loving and listening ear, but mm. to ask God for vindication. I mean, that's what we want, because false accusation puts a headline banner over your entire existence and says, this is who that that person is. 
And we want somebody to come and set the record straight and say, no, that's, that's not who this person is. Mm. Um, we, we want the truth to be shouted from the rooftops for innocence to be vindicated, uh, for, for righteousness, uh, to be publicized, uh, and, and the Psalms take that very human desire and they tell us this is something that God wants you to bring to him. And speaking more generally about the Psalms, like thinking across the, the entire Psalm book, and including the Psalms that don't appear in, this, in the Psalm book, um, what do you think, you know, if you think about churches today that uh, largely avoid the Psalms or they choose other songs instead of the Psalms as part of their worship and liturgy, um, and they just have become numb or insensitive or ignorant of what's going on in the Psalms, mm-hmm. um, what do they miss out? You know, you, you talked about the emotional vocabulary, but mm-hmm. um, what, what all is missed out by missing what is happening in the Psalms as part of our um, uh, musical vocabulary? And, and by musical, I mean our worship vocabulary. Yeah, so in one sense, uh, we're, we're going to major on certain popular modes of expression and miss the full gamut of mm. expression that the Psalter has, uh, which is uh, not just praise and adoration, not just thanksgiving, uh, but also profound songs of confession and repentance. Uh, owning owning sin before God, uh, recitals of God's delivering deeds, uh, mm. lament, both individual and corporate, over the 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 tarnished uh, brokenness of creation that it does not operate the way that it should, and that uh, wickedness does feel like it prowls on every side. And of course, uh, with my focus on the imprecatory psalms, I think we miss the fact that. Concerns for justice are, according to the Bible, uh, a necessary element of our communion with God. Mm. Um, You know, we'll we'll also, we'll miss the way that the Psalms frame the world, right? I mean, the Psalms, um, they, they, they pray and perform a particular vision of reality. And as we sing the Psalms, we enter into that reality. We are inducted into that vision of the world. We learn to behold creation as the realm over which God rules as sovereign king. Uh, So I think not only will we we be sort of emotionally stunted in our worship and our vocabulary for talking with God, but when we don't sing and pray the psalms, when we don't study and read the psalms, when we don't make them a part of our liturgical and and personal diet of communion, um, we end up with a warped vision of the reality that God has created and called us to inhabit. Would you say this is a accurate or inaccurate statement? The Psalms are the closest thing to a systematic theology in the Bible. Oh, I don't know. I might plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> I mean, because I, I think that the Psalms are profound 
pedagogies of prayer. Um, and so, yeah, they, they do make sort of systematic-like declarations about the character of God and the works of God. You know, you look at the Psalms of historical recital uh, mm-hmm. or something like that. They, they teach us um, how to interpret the works and ways of God in the world, but they're also forming us on other levels. Uh, they, they, are, they are pedagogical tools for shaping our imagination, like our, our most instinctive way of sensing the world. Uh, they are aiming our affections in particular directions. What we think is the point of the Christian or the religious life, uh, the Psalms may disagree and they may point us to and train us to desire certain ends and certain um, gifts and blessings from God that on our own, we, we may not have ever sort of effectively pursued. Um, yeah. If I can, if I can get you to explain a little bit, you run the, uh, the web journal um, Cataclasia and um, you use this term imagination a lot mm-hmm. in the, the mission statement and a lot right. of the writing, it shows up there. And um how do you meet? I mean, think about the average way the normal person right. hears the word imagination. Right. I think you're using it very differently. I am, yeah, but not not exclusively from that other term. So, how are you using that word? Yeah, I I'm using imagination, uh, recognizing that most of us think cognitively. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think um, we need to have the right ideas about the Bible and about God and about the world and what constitutes, you know, sort of ethical, faithful action. I'm much more uh, wanting to cultivate our instinctive sensibilities, um, our our skills for discerning scripture and the world, uh, and that's almost a more uh, even like bodily uh, mode of imagination. Uh, I want personally for myself to be so acquainted with the story of scripture and the world that is unfolded there, this theologically charged vision of reality, that I carry that story in my bones. Mm. That I wake up in the morning and I don't automatically, reactively conceive of reality like a 21st century Western individualist, but I feel and sense and then instinctively inhabit reality more and more as the kind of place that God says that it is, um, as a cosmic temple that God has made to fill with his glory, feeling in my bones the vocation that I have uh, as a royal priest, a son of God in God's family. I, I, want, uh, I want to be able to navigate the way that the Bible communicates and to hear the, the, the story that it's unfolding. And I also want to be able to inhabit the world as if that story really is true. So that's when I'm, when I'm talking about imagination, I'm talking about a, an almost gut-level conception of the world that we carry with us wherever we go. I, I mean, forgive me for dragging my own thinking into this, but... Like to me, it sounds like the same thing we want of good surgeons and astronomers and anybody who is performing at a high level and has high mm-hmm. degrees of discernment. 
the, the difference is, and maybe you disagree with me here, is I would say the biblical authors want us to believe that that's open and available to children, to farmers, to elites like you and me that have had the privilege of going to lots of graduate school, mm-hmm. to men, women, uh, natives, foreigners, like everybody's welcome to this, uh, some to some level of discernment here available through embodying, inhabiting, and living out the, the, the scriptures, right? Yeah, well, and I, I think of, you know, your work on, I may be butchering it, but I think of like ritual epistemology, hmm. like thinking about the world that farmers and children were inducted and invited into in, say, ancient Israel, right? where all of life has a liturgical flavor, where your senses are literally being trained all the time, down to your very ways of organizing time. Mm. Your, your liturgies of life are shaping you to inhabit a, a particular vision of reality. Uh, I mean, the Psalms make it clear. We will tell it to our children. We will not withhold the story of God's works mm. throughout the generations. I mean, we're we're absolutely um, encouraged to see um, biblical training, liturgical formation, um, really schooling for faithfulness uh, in the most democratized terms possible. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so if I said, Trevor, you are going to start a church tomorrow, and you get to just pre-plan out what we're doing on Sunday, uh, all the way through the next Sunday every week. Um, so, like, what are we doing? What are you going to be advocating that the people in your church are doing throughout the week? Uh, what's Sunday going to look like, and how might that be conceptually or practically different than any other church service we all go to on a Sunday morning? Oh, or or a Monday through you know Saturday kind of situation as well. Yeah, um, well, the church service uh, would look like you know the the historic liturgy of the church. Uh, it it every every week would be a movement through the story of God. We'd be called into His presence. We would adore Him uh, for His glory. We would hear the words spoken from His mouth. And let those bring us to repentance and confession. We would hear his assurance of pardon and move into the instruction to receive uh, his word with renewed hearts. We'd go to his table and taste uh, the the sacraments. Uh, Let them fill our bellies so that the love of God uh, dwells within us uh, in very physical and and tangible ways. Uh, We'd celebrate his redeeming work and be sent out uh, on mission, um, having been restoried uh, by the liturgy to then inhabit the world. Um, during the week, um, I, would, I would encourage uh, people to be saturated in the scriptures and to make a, a daily habit of praying with the Psalms uh, for, for many of the reasons that, that, that we just talked about. Um, with that, uh, I, I, would, I would want to see a church that called people into thick relationships of familial connection within the body of Christ to disciple us out of our love of self and our consumeristic and individualistic ways of beholding the world 
uh, and to, in one sense, train the muscles of our hearts, our minds, and our bodies to regard others uh, as intimately connected to us and bound by the Spirit. Um, I could talk about... (laughs) You know what? Yeah, you've what, thought about this, huh? What litur- well, you know, I, I I get to serve as an elder in a local church, and um, you know, work with some of our liturgy uh, to fill out um, our diet of communion with God. Um, but I, I think we often underestimate the the power of the everyday practices that we live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think particularly in evangelical circles, pastors and preachers um, underestimate the way that the shape of their life and worship together may absolutely undercut the message that they are preaching from the text. Mm. Um, and, and so I, I think it's absolutely vital that discipleship and ecclesiology are seen as formative forces in the life of the church that serve rather than run at odds with, you know, the the shaping that we're trying to do in our public proclamation. So that's good. That's a good full picture. I, I also wonder what role like uh, policy advocacy, um, you know, s- serving uh, people who may be marginalized or underprivileged in our communities. Like, what role you would see those as, as playing as backfilling or maybe forming the imagination as well? Yeah, I, I would see uh, mercy ministry um, and concerns for justice as in. in and maybe this is too simplistic, but uh, as one shape that holiness and witness take in God's world, that as a community is formed to love the things that God loves and to love people as God loves his world, um, the community will look for ways not merely as individuals, but as pockets of family uh, to serve uh, with one another in ways that witness to the beauty of the kingdom, in ways that point to uh, the reconciliation, the provision, the security that we experience as members of the kingdom, and that welcome people to taste and see that God is good by letting them uh, literally sensibly experience the restoration that can happen when God's kingdom uh, begins living faithfully uh, in a city. Um, I absolutely think that that too is a way of training our affections um, because we, we are not likely to love people uh, and pursue justice in sacrificial ways un- until we've been trained to. And we can learn to love together as we taste and see that God's ways are good uh, as we obey his commands and live as his people in the world. Yeah, I think the uh, 
that the emphasis that you put at the, at the very beginning on the imprecatory psalm, and even again here now on pursuing justice, um, that shapes our for, that shapes our imagination of what the kingdom is like, and that's not something it's not it's not an individual sport. Uh, it requires individual participation, but pursuing justice uh, has to be beyond ourselves, um, and it doesn't mean just believing good things about justice and wouldn't it be nice if the world were just, etc. Um, but actually making that happen, yeah. Um, you use the word liturgy on this final note. I would like uh, for those people who are scared to death of the term liturgy, could you give us a quick pitch on why you can't get away from it? Yeah, yeah. It, whether you like the word or not, you already live in it, right? Um, you already have patterns and rhythms of behavior that govern the way that you live your life, and you know, even more specifically, the way that your church goes through the process of approaching and hearing from God. And what we have to recognize is that that liturgy is always doing something to us. Mm. We are not autonomous and impenetrable selves. Uh, We are always being molded by the stories and the practices that we inhabit and the ways that those are directing our our eyes and our hearts toward a particular vision of what is desirable, what is good, what is praiseworthy, what is worth pursuing. We're always being shaped. Every time we come into corporate worship together, we are being taught, um, if not explicitly, then with at the level of our bodies, we're being taught, this is the way you come before God. Uh, a, a, a simple example. Um, I grew up in what would have styled itself as a non-liturgical church. But every single worship service had the exact same format. Uh, but it it was governed not by the, the historic movement of the liturgy through the story of what God has done, but through uh, emotional engagement. You come in excited. You, then the, the lights and the tone of the music goes down, you hear a word from God, and then you leave with the excitement up again. It's, you could trace it almost like a graph, that every week that's what's going to happen. That trains you uh, in a way of conceiving what it means to successfully approach God, mm-hmm. uh, which is why um, when that emotional uh process when that emotional journey was not happening in my personal piety, the immediate question is, what am I doing wrong? Mm -hmm. Am I even a Christian? Has God abandoned me? Because I'm not experiencing individually what I've been taught to experience corporately. Another thing that was conspicuously absent was any sort of confession or repentance. Mm -hmm. And so what I would bring to God as we approached uh, the sermon, because, you know, this was a tradition that did not practice the Lord's table regularly at all. Um, I brought a, a certain sort of emotional vigor, a sort a sort of emotional awareness. Uh, whereas the historic liturgy of the church and and the ways that we see people approaching God throughout Scripture is, we come bringing our sin, and we name it and we recognize it, and then we hear Him tell us once again that we aren't accepted because of what we've done or who we are but because of what he has done on behalf of us. And that trains us in what it means to commune with God throughout life. Uh, That trains us to 
sense the accusations uh, uh, and, and the reality of our own inadequacy, but to rehearse the promises of God uh, so that even when I know in, in my, my deepest being that I am unacceptable to God, I have been trained to hear his words of love and approval over my life. And that, that carries deep, uh, profound implications uh, just for navigating the world as a healthy human <laughs> uh, mm. rather than someone who uh, experiences what I experienced throughout my childhood, which was just profound racking anxiety over my standing in the eyes of God. Mm. Yeah, and I think even if somebody wanted to argue the point that sin shouldn't be front and center in the worship service or, you know, that has a place, but maybe that's off to the side or the story of God. Yes. But how you pitch the story, the, the, the main point stands is that whatever you're doing, you're crafting people's imaginations that's about right. how they relate to God. And I, I, I became a Christian in a church that was no liturgy, but I always said you could set your watch by the prophecy that was going to come from the guy behind you, you yeah. know? Uh, so, so yes, I, I think that that point should be heard loud and clear. Well, Dr. Trevor Lawrence, thank you for walking us through uh, issues of justice and mercy and knowing who God is through liturgy and the Psalms. And thank you for the wisdom. Absolutely. It was a real pleasure. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.